Hi, this is Evan from Epic Psychotherapy with another Epic Podcast. If you are in need of someone talk therapy, you can call or text me on 0497 395 341 or just go to my website epicpsychotherapy.com.au. Today's guest is Nathan Smith. Now, Nathan is the current police prosecutor here in Townsville, but um, we've got a bit of a history together through rugby. He was a you know, fair lock forward in the um, successful JCU rugby union team where we had a bit of success in the, um, I guess, you know, 2010-2011 area where we won a couple of premierships. Um, also, my first experience with Nathan was he was playing for the Faculty of Law in a rugby um, league sevens competition. I was playing for uh, engineering, funnily enough. Um, and he sort of come to talk to us a, f- a few things today, you know, just about his experience in the law, um, his experience with um, changing businesses and being a small business owner. We're going to touch on current, um, his experience from being a lawyer with um, domestic violence services here in Townsville. And if we get to it, we might talk about our experiences of um, fatherhood. So, Nathan, why law? (laughs) Thanks, Evan. Thanks for having me. Uh, That's a pretty easy answer for me. Um, Growing up, I had two main real interests. One was the military. Uh, The second was law. And purely just probably from watching movies and stuff like that. Uh, I was going to join uh, the army. Mm-hmm. I uh, started the enrolment process and everything. Uh, also, just uh, sent away my application to study law as well as kind of a backup at JCU. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of grade twelve, I started partying a little bit too much and decided I don't want a job yet and uh, stopped my application process through army and went to JCU law instead. So uh, it's a. <laughs> It's a pretty strange uh, way to do it or choose your career, but once I was at JCU and studying law, I fell in love with it and uh, never looked back. All right, so I've got a couple of questions for you. Um, so what movies were so inspirational you know, that led you down this career? Was <laughs> oh, it A Few Good Men or...? Uh, a, a Few Good Men was def- definitely up there, but <clears throat> TV shows and stuff like that, I've always had a bad stubborn personality where I like to argue uh, so people always said to me that I should be a lawyer and things like that and I think that stuck with me mm-hmm. um, but yeah well, once I started studying it really enjoyed it um, so, so what did you particularly love about law oh it's application just to everything in life which I don't think people appreciate yeah. you know it, it governs our complete society and and the ability to learn the reasons why mm-hmm. um, and how to manipulate that um, is a very powerful thing. Um, once, you know, uh, I, I really enjoyed criminal law in particular at JCU and uh, it was something I wanted to try and get myself into. Um, I got lucky um, and was able to actually go into that field once I finished uni um, uh, by landing myself a, a, a lucky position at a criminal only firm here in Townsville Mm -hmm. and that kind of just set me on the path of uh, I've only ever really practiced in criminal law Um, 
doing a, dabbling in a few other minor things. Uh, now with my reserve career, we do some other different types of law as well. But my uh, main specialty has always been criminal law. Okay. Um, I'm picking up on one of the words you used because in my practice as a psychotherapist, I often feel like I'm trying to manipulate someone towards their best self. So how do you mean manipulate from a legal sense? Yeah. The ability to know what the law is places you in a better position to argue or uh, not knowledge is power. Yeah. Right? So if you know the reason why something is or the law, the reason why the law is that way, you're in a better position to argue uh, for and against it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, you, when you're talking to people or uh, 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 when you're arguing with someone, um, whatever you're arguing for or against, uh, knowing about that's going to place in a better position. So, you know, laws everywhere in life, like I said, and it's not just criminal law I'm talking about. Um, processes, bank processes, consumer protection, just the ability to walk into a shop when you buy something uh, that hasn't worked like it was meant to work and then uh, be in a better position to speak to the poor clerk behind the desk. And uh, you don't, you know, I'm not saying that you're throwing law at them or anything like that, but yep. when they say, oh, sorry, that's... That's our supplier issue. Well, it's it's not, mm. um, and y- you need to help work with me with this. So stuff like that, you know. I've just I just enjoyed enjoyed what I was learning. A lot of the cases, you know, people uh, that laws based off when you're learning at JCU, extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the hectic cases that you read about and stuff like that. It's good, interesting stuff that keeps you. Uh, when learning, um, want to continue and, and interested in what you're actually learning about. Don't get me wrong, there was plenty of times in law, uh, the study, and that was boring as hell and subjects which I didn't enjoy at all. Yep. And I probably didn't enjoy them because they were a bit too boring. Um, and that just showed to me that I didn't want to work in that area. Mm. You know? All right. So I heard um, arguing. Yeah. Now, as you know, I've got a probably deep in, interest in philosophy, and one of the things um, I think it's John Stuart Mill so, sort of said was that um, he who doesn't know the best argument against what he's arguing um, doesn't know his own side of the argument either. <laughs> and it's a good line. I like that. I haven't heard that. Yeah. So he knows nothing, or something like he knows nothing of his own argument so unless you can understand it from another's perspective you know and unless you can give the best argument against yourself which I'm assuming you don't do in a you know in a trial where you're saying well I kind of do actually like okay that line rings really true to me particularly when I was working defence because uh, one of the main things I always did when preparing uh, let's say for a hearing where it's pleading your client's pleading not guilty is all right. Well, how would I win this? Yes. Being, being a prosecutor. Yeah. Sorry. How would I prove this charge beyond a reasonable doubt? Yep. And then, all right. This is what I would argue. Right. How do I stop that? Mm. How do I uh, disprove that that they're not or raise doubt so that they can't satisfy that element? So you think about your opponent's uh, argument, which requires a great bit deal of empathy. Uh, well, yes and no, and. Um, uh, 
And then I think, well, how am I going to argue about that fact? Yeah. And it's kind of, you're, you're trying to find every hole that you have in your potential case. Yep. And plug that hole to stop them being able to argue against it. So that's that's a very straightforward thing, you know. It's, yeah. It's, it's somewhat, I, I always related it actually to a ch- game of chess as opposed to that philosophy there. You yep. always have to try and think two steps ahead um, so, yeah. so that you already well, have the argument. Yeah, and I like that, um, you know, because when I'm playing chess well, you know, I'm, I'm about free, I'm thinking about, well, what's he going to do next, what I'm going to do next. What he, so when I'm playing well, I'm about three moves ahead of where I need to be. And apparently the um, top players are about eight moves ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, so that, that's a whole level of complexity. So I do like that. Um, I guess, you know, again, I'm going to digress just a little bit here and, make my own point is, you know, given what I do as a um, psychotherapist, is we see empathy as this um, high thing that we should aim for. And there's an argument that psychopaths don't have empathy. But in my sort of practice in mental health, psychopaths have great empathy because they know it will hurt you. So therefore they use that empathy to understand how you might be feeling and then exploit it. Um, Yeah, that's... I, I, I know what you're trying to say there. Yeah. I, maybe I've got the wrong definition. That's why I said oh. yeah, yes and no to empathy before, as in definition of empathy, that is, because I relate empathy as to feelings and yes. emo- emotional feelings. Yes. Whereas when it comes to criminal law and arguments and type like that, um, usually yeah. uh, emotions are really left at the door. Yeah. And, and when you walk into a courtroom, you're really arguing uh, at least... Sometimes, it really depends on the circumstance, you know. Yep. For a jury, for example, emotions are an extremely powerful thing to argue with. But um, when I'm thinking about what legal tactic and what legal argument is the yep. other side going to have, emotions don't really come into it at all. Okay, so I'll expand on how I understand empathy. So sympathy is um, feeling for somebody. Mm-hmm. So I see that you're upset, so I become upset too. So I'm, I'm actually feeling an emotion for you. Um, empathy is feeling with, so you know I can I, I can feel your emotion and I can understand how you're feeling that, but I'm not feeling it for you. Like, um, and then apathy is obviously not feeling at all. So you've got the three levels: oh, apathy, empathy, was when you're you know, understanding how another's feeling. Yep. So, and again, I, I would have thought empathy would have been useful. You know, again, as you said, arguing in front of a jury because. You've got to try and figure out how the jury's feeling. And I'm assuming, to an extent, you want the jury to be um, empathetic towards your client. Yeah, and, and it's probably my career, though. I've, uh, I'm have i a solicitor, so I practice in the magistrate's court. Sure. And, and we don't have juries. Okay. So in the magistrate's court, we just have a magistrate who determines both law and um, facts. Yep. And so they're usually... Uh, probably would usually have the ability to take emotion out of determining okay, matter. Sure. Okay, sure. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I take your point for a jury and, and circumstance to circumstance, you know, depends depends what you're arguing, what case you're arguing and things like that. A fraud case, for example, yeah. you're not going to have to worry too much about uh, when it's all forensic evidence, yeah. um, reasons okay. why and stuff like that. You, you, there, yeah. there is, don't get me wrong, I don't want to sound like a robot or anything like that, or lawyers, criminal lawyers in particular are robots, but uh, 
because for things for such example like plea and mitigation so mm-hmm. when someone's pleaded guilty yep. you're trying to get them the best result as a their defense lawyer yeah um, you, you really hammer down on emotions and try and get a magistrate for yes. example to feel how your client was feeling at the point in time when God, they potentially yeah. did something very stupid yeah because i guess that's something that you know that, that i've been asked to do is um now have somebody who's let's say done something that's regrettable but um to provide an assessment for them so mm-hmm. that um that can be presented as evidence as to yeah. the mental state that they, they were at and um so okay. you know that, that's something that yeah psychological okay. reports yes. like what you're referring to there yeah. pre-sentence reports stuff like yeah. that are very powerful when it comes to sentences and, and things like that yeah because it, it places it's all good for a, and it's very common, it's all good for a solicitor or a barrister to talk about, oh, look, my client was suffering from depression at the time. And yeah. um, it's uh, a lot more weight is behind that submission, though, when you have an uh, a expert having explained the reasons why mm. and um, uh, provide that level of expertise to that submission. So, yeah, those reports go well, sometimes they're the difference between a person staying staying out in the community or going to jail. Sure. All right. So we, we sort of, I guess, you know, we've digressed a bit and we sort of finished yeah. with your um, career at JCU and I think, you know, the, your first job. But uh, you, yeah. you clerked for a judge. What was that like? That was really good. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take a back step because it kind of sets me up for that clerk's position as a associate's position as a judge. Yeah. Um, the year before I worked at a crime only firm and it was, uh, what was it? At the, end, at the end of my last year at JCU, they, back when they used to do the bad boy fight nights. Oh, cool. Yeah. You remember those? <laughs> I never went to one, but I wanted to compete. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that, that, that were amazing. Uh, Chris Condon used to run those at the showground and, and uh, for, for a young guy who just wants to go and see a fight or something, they were, they were the best thing around town. Yeah. Pretty, pretty hectic and insurance laws, uh, like everything, have, have ruined it basically. But um, went along to that at the end of uh, my degree and saw this uh, banners all around the tent and tw- such and such uh, Ennis and Telford Lawyers, yep. which was the firm that I started to work yes. for. Ennis and Telford Lawyers, crime, 24-hour crime line. I'm like, oh... This, this firm must do a little bit of criminal law. Um, yep. Come that Monday, I, I gave him a phone call, said, you're just about to finish. Yep. I'd like to do a, a clerk position. Do you have anything? And went in there and uh, met with uh, an offsider and then met with Andy Anderson Telford uh, himself after that and told him that story and he thought that was great and he offered me a position there. And yep. So I did that for that year. So that was a really good basis and grounding um, taught me a lot of really good things about being a criminal solicitor as Anderson is one of Townsville's yep. uh, been around for a long time most experienced criminal lawyers in, in the North Queensland so I learned a lot of good things about being a uh, criminal solicitor of him at the same time though I'd, I'd, uh, previously that year I also applied for a judge's associates position so, okay. so they're normally offered to junior people who are just starting their career yes. usually yeah. there's exceptions yeah. Yeah. but um, junior people starting out in their career I didn't get it uh, another girl got the job and so at the round about November or December of the following year after I've been working with Andy for about a year 
um, I, I, I bumped into the girl who actually got the position. I knew her well. I did uni yeah. with her. Sure. And we were in Flins in, in the city. <laughs> um, As you one, were yeah, at that age. One Saturday night. And uh, we were just chatting like, oh, how, how has it has been? And she's telling me about it. And um, I said to her, and she was like, oh, yeah. We're, we're, she actually, I think she actually said, uh, struggling to find some people uh, for next year. Oh, and, okay. And uh, I so, oh, you know, that's, she asked, would, you, would that be something you'd be interested in? Yeah. You know, applying again. And she, she told me that oh, I was apparently a close second and I don't know whether she was just being nice or not. Yeah. But um, I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Blah, blah, blah. And we were chatting about other things. And then that Monday morning, uh, round about lunchtime, I get a, a message from her. Hey, spoke to the judge about you on Saturday night. Uh, he'd like to, you to come down and interview this afternoon. Like, yeah. Shit. Went down, interviewed with him, and uh, yeah, the next couple of weeks later, got the position and uh, worked with him for a year. And that was probably one of the most valuable uh, experiences a junior solicitor could or practitioner could ever actually have. Mm. Um, I was just chatting with a, a girl in our office the other day about it. Um, the ability to work with what is one of the, they're a judge, so mm. one of the greatest legal minds in the community at the time. Um, everything was probably, it was probably 95% work that came in front of us, in front of the courts, is criminal law. So yep. what I was interested in. Um, ability to see, watch them all day, because all you really do as an associate, people who obviously wouldn't know what that is, is you're effectively just the judge's secretary. Yep. Um, and you sit in court uh, in front, down in front of the bench, uh, you take the notes as required for all the matters um, and you go out back and you can help them with research and things like that and, and, and organize all their admin for uh, uh, all the work purposes anyway. Mm. So it was really good that I could sit there in court all day uh, in a district court in Townsville, uh, watch all the barristers, um, good and bad, yeah. um, know what was good, what was bad. Um, got to, my judge... Uh, Judge Derwood, SC, uh, at the time was extremely uh, good to me in that he would take me up back or, you know, during adjournments and stuff like that during the trials and, and explain um, the, some of the things that was going on, why they were arguing this way and or why they shouldn't be arguing that way. You know, yeah. there was a lot of... I, I think he used uh, some... <laughs> there were some times where he was clearly frustrated Yes. At how badly some of the council were doing. And he would use us as a, a sounding board and a bit of a venting board. But it was amazing experience for to hear like, all right, the, you take you take that on board. I'm not going to do that what that barrister just did when I practice, that's for sure. Yeah. If it, it's obviously annoying to judge. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a whole year long. And it was basically just a sit back, absorb as much as you possibly could. Yeah. Um, and because I had such a good judge, he, you know, he, he tried to make as good a learning experience that he could yeah. uh, for me by, by explaining a lot of the things and telling me what he used to do and stuff like that. And you, you build a very close rapport because you, you go away and travel with each other and it's always just you two going out to dinner each night. And so, so what I'm hearing, it's very much a sort of an apprentice sort of model. Oh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say apprentice. Um, and, and to be honest, I don't know... This was just my personal yeah. experience with my judge because I'm sure uh, each individual yeah. judge uh, differs yeah. as well. Um, I wouldn't say apprentice because 
it, you don't go on then to potentially become a judge or anything no, no, like that. Yeah. Okay. So mentoring let, was yeah. would probably be a well. Be a well, let me just explain this from my own perspective. And um, so, in, in mental health, you know, we're going to digress a bit here. Um, it's very much a sort of an academic model, and you know, you go to university, you learn your skills, blah blah blah. But what I've found useful in developing myself as a clinician is uh, spending time with experienced clinicians and you sit under them and they'll explain you know, what, what's happened to you and how you go and potential what questions you could ask. And this isn't in front of the client, but this is after you've sort of sat in with them. And I find that sort of an apprenticeship model. You know, I, I, and I describe this as an apprenticeship model. As um, so, one thing as a therapist is it's really important to have therapy yourself. So, what so what I was hearing there was, again, you know, you've done your university study, but to make you a better clinician, oh, clinician, sorry, lawyer, um, you needed actually to spend some time watching how you know. Again, one of my favourite quotes is um, from Albert Einstein. In theory, practice and theory are the same thing. In practice, they're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, 100%. so, 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 what I was hearing was, again, you'd gone to law school. You know, you'd become. You know, you'd got your qualifications. You'd, you'd had a year clerking for somebody else, and maybe that was a bit of an apprenticeship as well. Mm. And then working for the judge. Again, you know, for me, that that follows that apprenticeship where you're thinking about how you're going to be when you're the man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, so... Well, well, yeah, because, well, in particular criminal law, it's all about being an advocate. Yeah. Advocacy, standing on your feet and talking and arguing yep. and things like that. So in that regard, the ability to watch people all day, yeah, was, yep. was a huge advantage. Whereas if had I have gone off and become a conveyancing lawyer or something like that, it would have been almost pointless. Waste of time, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But because it was something that I was interested in wanting to do, yeah, um, yeah, we, we continue. It worked really well for me. Yeah, yeah, okay, no. So, but it, it's it's funny you, you talk about that, and I, I've always believed in that type of model for learning, um, kind of junioring someone. Yeah, regardless. a master and apprentice. This is the this is um, from a Star Wars perspective how the um, <laughs> Sith chain train. <laughs> but you know, I believe that there's value in that. You know, yeah, um, agreed. And it's, it's actually a big point in um, Queensland at the moment for solicitors because there's a process currently where you finish your degree and you just have a law degree. You're not, you're yep. not a lawyer or a practice, legal practitioner or anything. Before you can be admitted, yep. when I say admitted, it's a formal process. To the bar. Admitted to the Supreme Court as okay. a legal practitioner. All right. Um, you have to pass the graduate diploma in legal practice, which mm-hmm. is your graduate studies. And that currently is just done through uh, a number of universities round, and uh, it's been going, don't quote me on the exact times, but it would probably be the last 20 years or so has been around that. Prior to that, they had uh, what was called the article clerk process, which is you go to a firm for a number of years, and that's more of a apprenticeship type work, where here is, you do your theory in uni. Yes. Graduate diploma legal practice is, is is meant to be more practical, but yeah. basically just it's university again, and in a more slightly practical sense. 
and a lot of people uh, around the state are unhappy with the process because a lot of junior solicitors uh, are coming out with none of the practical experience because they haven't you know had that mentor or had that time juniorring and, and things like that so um, there's some studies getting done at the moment is this the best practice to be creating uh, our junior solicitors and stuff like that so sure We'll, you know, and again, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I don't think yeah, it is, but we'll see but, what but happens. But the world needs good junior solicitors, and of course, you want to think about you know how do you do that the best way possible. And again, I'm thinking about my own perspective as the world needs good mental health um, yeah. nurses, and I'm not convinced that entirely the university model that you come out of university after um, doing a degree that you're suddenly a good mental health nurse. You know, I think you need aspects of that work experience yeah. and where you learn, like, like in, in university, that they teach you a very idealised form of your practice. Yeah, the, the, there's, there's got to be practical experience thrown in there. You mm. look, at, look at the medicine degrees. Oh, uh, gosh, yes. You know, like they're, they're well, JCU, a six-year degree, but the last three years or so is you're practically in a hospital the whole time. Yeah. Um, yeah. As well as doing your study. Oh, no, and it doesn't stop there either, let me tell you. Oh, it goes on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I know, but, but just for the degree, at least part. For the, for the degree. They, they have, and at least they had, and I don't know much about the other health sciences. Yeah. I only know because I, a good friend of mine did medicine. Oh, yes, um, sorry about that. Oh. <laughs> well, you, you know Ryan Harvey. Oh. Did you meet Ryan Harvey? Yeah, I, I vaguely you recall. Might, you might have met him in but, the but. Anyway, he, um, yeah, I, I just saw what process he went through and a couple of other med mates went through. Yeah. And, but yeah, they, they never stopped studying, studying as well. Oh, yeah, no. Look, medicine is so rough. You know, I'm just going to digress here a little bit. So I've obviously spent a lot of time around young doctors and yeah. doctors in training. So at least, so, so let me just explain the process as I see it. So you do the six-year degree. So let's say you're 18 when you start that. You finish it when you're 24. Hooray, you've got, you've got your medical degree. Yeah. You know, you're a doctor. You can legally describe yourself as a doctor. But then you've got two years of being a house officer. So then you're 26. And then you might be a registrar for a good period of time. 50% um, of doctors end up becoming GPs. You know, but... And that's seen socially amongst medicine as being kind of a failure oh you crack at becoming a consultant <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah right. and look that's outrageous yeah. yeah yeah and but then by the time you become a um, consultant you might be in your sort of early to mid 30s and you, you you find you know so this is a 12 to 15 year process to become a consultant or a gb before you finally find your feet mm. and it's m mentally rough you know, like medicine doesn't mess around in regards to their studies. So if you just fail one assessment, you know, you get to do the whole year again the next year. Yeah. If you fail twice, they kick you out, which basically. Is, which is probably what you want when you're dealing with people's lives. Though. Oh. But yeah, it, it, that doesn't transition to other degrees. Law, oh, yeah. Law, no. for example, you can be uh, basically four-year degree, probably fast-track that by six months or so if you do, you know, extra yep. um, uh, intensives. I think you used to be able to do the PLT in almost three months, graduate diploma in legal practice, that is. Um, yep. 
So you, you could be out practicing as a lawyer within four and a, four and a bit years yeah. and arguing for someone's liberty. Yes. You know, four and a bit years, which is a very scary thing. Well, you want a good lawyer, you know. and Well, you know, again, cost. Now, I think um, philosophically, you get the value to an extent that you pay for. And if you're going for a cut price lawyer, you might end up getting what you pay for. Um, Just because you pay a lot of money too doesn't mean you get a good lawyer. I can, yeah. I can tell you that round. Excuse me. That round town is just a can being opened. Yeah. Um, I can yeah. tell you that now, particularly around Townsville, uh, sometimes price, usually, but sometimes it's not indicative of, of the quality, quality of, of uh, legal experience. And but, again, if your future is on the line, you want somebody of quality, of competence, that's going to give you the best defence possible. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, so we got up to um, your judging for the clerk. Have you got, sorry, judging for the clerk? Associate to judge, yep. Associate to the judge for the clerk? Uh, after oh, that, gosh. After that year, I t- uh, basically had a year off. Yep. Um, uh, ju- what did you, you do in that year? Uh, tra- backpack around Western Europe. Okay, cool. Um, the judge actually convinced me to do it. We, oh, we, yeah. were, we were sitting at a pub down in Brisbane. Yep. Uh, in like... May or, or June or May one yeah. year and that year and uh, he was he asked me well what are you doing next year and I said oh I don't know I'll just find a find a job around town somewhere he goes no nah. yes you're too you're too young to get settled down um, uh, you're going overseas yes spend a year overseas go see the world Sabbatical. before you get stuck in a firm mm, yeah. in the back of the corner oh wise um, advice yeah it was uh, his daughter was actually overseas living in London at the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, this was a judge. He, he, he wasn't telling me it was well. So he wasn't advising me to do it. He was telling me that that's what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then uh, so <laughs> that thought about it for a little bit, but uh, yeah, that that solved it. And a year later, I, well, at the next year, I was landing in London, getting picked up by his daughter from the airport. Yeah. Okay. Went, so went and stayed with her for, right. for a week, and then travelled around. Okay, so it sounds like, you know, the judge was very much, you know, for want of a better word, a father figure, a mentor. A, he definitely was, yeah. A person, you know, you could trust and confide in and, uh, you know, look on. So what did you learn in that year? You know, that, that may not have been about law, but may have been developmental for you. Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know, to be honest. Uh... Traveling, I traveled around by myself for a large yeah. part of it. I was with a few others. I, yeah. I went over went over to Ireland. And Did you play any rugby? Yeah, played a couple of games. Played, cool. played a couple of games in Ireland and then um, played a game in Spain um, just by chatting to lads in the pub yeah. and talked my way into a game just because rugby's not big in Spain and they needed, oh, they needed players. They needed, yeah. Um, I was in Barcelona once and um, there was this game of rugby being played at the university and I just sort of watched it and I was sort of thinking, oh, I could be playing this. Could be out on the pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but bravo you for taking that opportunity, you know. Yeah, yeah. Rugby's like a universal language. That's 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 exactly what it was. And, yeah. You know, they, they were chatting to me and it's... English isn't well. At least this this was two thousand and nine. Anyway, yep. Spain was one of the lowest English speaking countries at yep. that point in time in Western Europe. 
Um, I'm not sure what it's like now, but so speaking English at a pub kind of makes people pick up ears and yep. some, I think it was an Irish bloke started chatting to me and went over and started drinking with those lads for the night and played rugby with them the next day, so that was good fun. But How'd you go? Not well. <laughs> I'd been <laughs> backpacking around, sleeping on the floors and things like that and sleeping in tents and eating poorly, so I wasn't in the best peak fitness, that's for sure. But uh, no, it was, it, was, it was just good for a laugh. It was like reserve grade standard we have here anyway, so it was yeah, good fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I don't know, what did I learn? That year, yeah, traveling by myself, um, not afraid to you know, make decision and do that and look after myself. And uh, I had a really good time. One thing I've always looked back at that year was I did so much. Um, Whereas I'm you know, so privileged to have done something like that, whereas a lot of friends haven't even left the country and stuff yeah, like that. And yeah. I did a lot of stupid shit too. <laughs> like, yep. You know, I, I, people say, you know, I do Europe on a shoestring. I did it properly, at least for some parts, on a, on a shoestring. Sure. I was sleeping under bridges and... and um, Getting the lived experience of what it's like to be homeless. Yeah, yeah, I was. Like... The, the, I was saving money sometimes just by finding a nice spot under a tree and just camping there for the night because it's you know, beautiful weather. You don't know mozzies or insects you need to yeah. worry about. I literally just rolled my sleeping bag out and camped and went and had a shower, uh, free showers and stuff like that the next day. Yeah. And, Been there, uh, done that. Yeah. Walked along a beach for a week and down on the south of Spain from Malaga to Gibraltar yep. just because I could. Um, sleeping in bushes and stuff like that and didn't matter it was good fun awesome. but yeah uh, I, I was keen to get back to Australia yep. by the end of it I you'd think had it was, enough yeah I'd had enough so what convinced you that you'd had enough uh, I, I, I wanted to probably get on with my life I wanted yep. to get back into law um, yep. I wanted to start my career uh, I was running out of money yep no, fair enough. Um, so, so what I'm hearing is you were sort of more focused, you know, that you'd... I'd had my fun. Yeah, and you had a vision of where you wanted, you know... Okay, so let me sum up that before you left, you know, maybe you were unsure and um, of what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. But that year, you know, that you had your fun and you are like, actually, what I was doing is what I actually want to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And when you say it out loud like that, that's that's probably exactly what happened. I remember about two or three months into it, because before yeah. I'd left, I'd, I'd been offered a couple of positions. And I, and I always had a doubt going over that I'm like, geez, am I doing the right thing here? Like, should I have taken those positions? Are they going to potentially be there when I get back? Yeah. Um, they may not be. There's always another bus. Yeah, that's right. And But, you know, I was young, and I think it's something young... Uh, people coming out of uni s- still struggle with now like yeah got to find a job uh, yeah not regardless of whether it's the right job or not and i've always been super lucky in my life that it's always just worked out regardless of what happens so yeah went, went over there but but about two or three months into it i was i, I got really homesick yep um uh, in ireland a little bit miserable because i hate the cold and i'm like what have i 
doing here? I'm, this is this is stupid. Like I'm just stuffing my career here because I didn't work in law or anything like that. Once oh, I was over did you there. do sort of other jobs that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, what sort of jobs did you do? <laughs> you know those people. So basically, um, working for a company that does professional fundraising. Okay. You, oh, you, right. you know, yeah, yes. Know those lads that you see around the city and stuff like that will pull you up. Yeah. Try to get you to sign up to. X, Y, Z. Yeah, whatever it is yeah. on a contractual basis. Yeah. Um, that's what I did, except yeah. I did it in Ireland door knocking. So we would go out. So there was this company that did it. Yeah. The charity we were fundraising for was called Dogs Trust, which yeah. is kind of like RSPCA, except they never put down dogs. That was their thing. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and so it was, a, it was a good charity to kind of at least be uh, raising for in terms of its an easy sell yep. compared to other ones because it's dogs and everyone loves animals. So we would go out, meet, meet in uh, Dublin because I was living in Swords at the time, uh, which is a suburb just north of Dublin. And uh, we'd, we'd go meet, meet in the morning and then jump in our cruise together. There was a team leader who had a car and they'd drive us and yep. they'd have it all mapped out, the people that were organising it. And you just hit these suburbs each day. Yep. Door knocking, getting people to sign up we, and, and this was only a year post GFC yes a lot, a lot of people's doors I was knocking on was uh, had just oh, been lost yes. their job and oh, stuff terrible. like that and, um, oh no but it was really good fun because the majority of people there were a couple of Irish uh, lads that were working with it one, one older fella who had just lost his job in the GFC and I got this job within a week of being in sure. Dublin so, you know, it's, they're easy jobs to get because it's high turnover. Yes. But the majority of people were backpackers that were doing it. Yep. And did your Aussie accent work for you? Uh, probably no. Okay. Probably not so much because they, a lot of people saw it as, who's this Aussie coming over here telling oh, me to give yes. them money? I don't have any money. Mate, don't you know there's a global financial crisis on? And yeah, fair well, enough. Yeah, it, it was all right. The, the only thing is, I'll, I'll give people where advice is, don't try and argue with those people who sell on, trying to sell up because they've heard every argument mm. and they've got a response mm. for anything you can come up with. Yeah. And so I had a response for anything someone yeah. would, would you know throw at me. Yeah. But uh, that was an amazing experience because A, I got paid pretty well actually because we were on a base wage plus commission what we'd set, sign people up to. Mm. Met a lot of good mate, Aussie mates which I eventually moved in with yeah. and I got paid to travel around Ireland and see mm. Ireland while I did it. And so I did that for three or four months before I uh, basically quit and mm -hmm. started actually backpacking around mainland Western Europe. All right, so so that's all. If, I you, did. if you had to list, list your top three experiences and things to do in Europe that you saw, what yep. would they be? Uh, number one would easily be uh, there were a course I did in Spain, mm -hmm. which is a volunteering thing. Mm -hmm. um, Puble Ingles was the name of the company at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it's around anymore, but it's an English-speaking school mm -hmm. for Spanish people. Yep. And they have these places uh, all over all over Spain. Uh, I went to three different ones, all over three different locations. And one of them like was up in this, vill uh, this villa 
in a rolling wine region. <laughs> Lovely. Another one was uh, this abandoned town, like this mm-hmm. tiny little, almost medieval uh, historical town that you basically take over. And, and the purpose behind it is it's a week-long thing um, and all these Spaniards pay. You don't pay, but all these Spaniards go along. They pay money. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. And uh, everyone just talks English. So it's mm-hmm. to try and immerse these Spaniards into what is a, a little community mm-hmm. um, and only speaks English. So everything is English mm-hmm. uh, for the week. And it just, they're, you know, English absolutely skyrockets after it because that's all you speak. They have uh, lots of activities and, and group team things and one-on-one sessions where, you know, yep. you just walk, walk around with a Spaniard chatting, having a random chat about what, what's yes, happening. Now. Exactly right. Um, so it was free though mm-hmm. for English speakers. So that's yeah. why it's a volunteering thing. So for me, you know, the first one I did, we read about it in a travel magazine, you know, ways to get accommodation for free and stuff like that. So <laughs> yeah, I'd been sleeping in a tent yep. all, all through France uh, on the ground and stuff like that. Next minute, uh, I'm having all I can eat at lunch all I can drink at dinner with wine at both meals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, you, you, you pay for a few drinks and stuff like that. And um, with, with all these other people who are all there for the experience and stuff like that. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. All right. um, I kept going. I went back twice again, just yep. throughout my travels. So I've got a question for you. What did you make of that? Um, you know, the people that thought that your time was so valuable, they were prepared to pay for your... Accommodation, you know, like I thought it was amazing. I think it's one of the greatest things ever, and I've always recommended people who go to Europe to, to do this because, uh, for me, one of the best things was that a, a lot of the Spaniards we're, we're talking extremely well off business people mm. and stuff like that, you know, yep. with their own companies, and yep. um, a lot of more university students who mm-hmm. were trying to increase their English so that they can work for a company, international companies, and make themselves. Uh, make their CV better and stuff like that. Uh, one, you know, amazing old Spanish lady who was doing learning English purely because she was scared of dementia. Oh. And uh, her thing was, you know, if I, um, you know, read about it and I keep my mind active, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll. Uh, from something in that, from a mental health perspective, she was right. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, so super wide array, but you get. You're living with these people for a whole mm. week, you know. You go on course and stuff like that. You get really close to people, um, and I was the only Australian on all of them. So they, they loved they loved me just because they took me under their wing, and that that then meant the next couple of months I could almost stay wherever I wanted for free in Spain because mm. I'm, I'm just travelling around. And oh, such and such is lives in Valencia. I'll go. Yeah. I'll pop in and see them and, and stay with them for a night. So yeah, it it, it was good. So I'm hearing a great deal of affection for the Spanish people. Mm. Love oh. Spain. Absolutely love Spain. I, I don't know whether it was because the uh, temperature reminded me of Australia, but I probably spent in the seven months I was backpacking, two of those months in Spain. Great. I just kept going back there. All right. So experience number two. Uh, ooh. Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest. Munich. Munich. Beerfest. Yeah. So it. So what made that? The mate, I could never get over. I think Australians have a really bad way with alcohol. 
Mm-hmm. Our, our binge drinking, I think, is, is pretty stupid. Mm-hmm. But, you know, obviously we, we've got a problem with violence as well. To go to a place where, if you've, if, have you ever been to Munich? No, the been the Munich. Yep. The, Sorry. The, the beer halls that they have set up, particularly for Oktoberfest, these giant halls mm-hmm. that packs in hundreds and hundreds of people at all these long tables. In the middle is a big round stage with uh, a German band just cranking mm. these happy beer tunes the whole time. I've never been in a place, or so I'd never been where there were so many line of their face people yep. in such a happy, happy mood. Yes, not 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 an iota of violence or. There was, there, yeah. I think there was a couple of incidences and stuff like that, but... Probably drunk Australians. <laughs> yeah, I think one was. But, um, but I'd, I'd never been in such a, a just cheerful, drunken experience with so yes. many people before in my life. Um, and it was, it was a really good thing to experience. Lovely. Awesome. Now, number three. Number three. Oh, La Tomatina in... Uh, Spain was pretty intense. Mm-hmm. That's the um, tomato throwing festival oh, yeah. that people have seen. Mm. I, went, I went and did that, and that was just chaos. Uh, I like. I used to explain it as if you've ever been in a uh, heavy metal mosh pit, mm-hmm. food fight. <laughs> if you added a food fight to a heavy metal mosh pit, that's what La Tomatina was. It was it was insane and, and let me tell you like tomatoes at full pelt do really hurt <laughs> particularly for tall guys who you know are slightly yeah. head above like I was I was crouching down because uh, crouch if your heads if your heads if your heads sticking out you were getting smacked in the head just by <laughs> anyone reach <Rachel. laughs> yeah 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 that that was intense and and I don't you can't comprehend how many tomatoes that they release into this little 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 laneway that it's up to your shins you're standing yes. you're standing in tomato juice up to your shins you, you can practically swim in it mm-hmm. it's an, it's just insane but those, those two were pretty good experiences if anyone has a chance to do it in you should do it other yeah. than that just just traveling around um and meeting locals and stuff like that is it's pretty incredible awesome awesome okay so you went away. You had lots of fun. Mm-hmm. Came back to Australia, and I understand you worked for um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service for a number of years. Yeah, so got a job, criminal lawyer um, at Atzels, which is what that is for, Aboriginal mm-hmm. Torres Strait Islander Legal Service. Worked there for about five or six years. Kind of just really honed my skills there uh, from what I'd previously known. Mm-hmm. That Atzels was very sink or swim type learning. We talked about before mm-hmm. mentoring and stuff like that. There was very little there. Yep. Uh, and that I think some sometimes they, I don't know what it's like there now because I haven't worked there for a couple of years, but uh, it was very sink or swim type stuff. And, and I've got the mentality that at least had the mentality and previous experience that I was able to survive that, but a lot of people don't. Yep. Uh, or, or So what was rough about it? Say again. So what was rough about it? You know, um, you know. So you, in the early part of your career, you had these um, mentors at Anderson Talbot. Yep. You had the mentor and the judge. Yep. Then suddenly, the apprenticeship is over. Mm. 
So what did you find tough about it? Not having uh, someone there that you could really trust in the advice to give to you. So Um, how do you mean that? That there were people that might give you bad advice or... Yeah, yeah, a little bit of both. Or people that just were too busy themselves Mm -hmm. to give you the time um, to be able to properly help you out. Mm-hmm. There, there was there were some people there that that would, and I was mm-hmm. very appreciative of that. Um, but for the most part, uh, Atzels is very well, at that point in time was very understaffed and overworked. Mm-hmm. So anyone who was more senior um, uh, would, yeah, were too busy themselves to really help out. But don't get me wrong, I was I wasn't completely on my own. There were lots of people I could turn to, <coughs> and chat with, and a couple of them there did help me out. But yeah. Uh, you, you get a big caseload yourself and it's just straight into it. Yeah, because I can recall, you know, while you're working for um, Ansel, approaching you and just saying, look, I've got to an age or a position in society where, to, you know, maybe I want to retain a lawyer. You know, do you recall the conversation? And you were like, um, nah, you know, you can't do it even. <laughs> You want to become a lawyer or retain? No, 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 no. Oh. I wanted to retain you. Oh, well, potentially, yeah. you know, because I like a drink. You know, let, let, let's say. <laughs> you get in trouble. Yeah, well, that point in time, yeah, it's because you didn't identify. Yeah, well, I didn't identify as an indigenous, and fair enough too, because um, obviously I'm an immigrant. Yeah. Um, it would be very hard to make that sort of claim. You're the, you're the wrong islander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a South Sea island. Islander from a very South, South Sea very, island. Very South Sea. Yeah, yeah. You know, because um, I hadn't had any experience with lawyers, but I, from my reading of, um, let's say, John Grisham, <laughs> that having a lawyer to re- retain, you know, it's like, you know, do I have to pay you a couple hundred dollars just to retain you? And you were like, yeah, no. That's not how it works. No. Come, come, come to me when you've got a problem, is probably what I actually said. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what you said. So some people, I think, some private firms do run on a basis of retaining and stuff like that, and um, that was never our business model anyway. Yeah, but obviously, you know, so, you know, again, that must have been a form of experience, sink or swim, you know, the, um, you know, you're being cast an iron then, I guess. Yeah. You know, I dare say you made mistakes at that time as oh, well. Oh, 100%. I remember uh, my first hearing I ran... And then following that, I did a course by the Australian Advocacy Institute. Yep. I think that's right. Yeah, and uh, that was probably one of the best advocacy courses that I've ever done. But I remember sitting during the course going, oh, geez, I completely stuffed that up. Or I, mm. what they were telling me, I was thinking back to the first hearing I did going, oh, I did the exact opposite of that, and that's terrible. And anyway, yep. I, won, I won the hearing, so I guess it didn't matter. I just want to, I just got got to point that out. Yeah, got the got the results. So it didn't matter, but but um, you could, have, you know, again, you reflected on it. You could have done better. That that was one of the um, examples of what practical what practical stuff did JCU or, or AMU teach me that I'm doing an advocacy course that's te- and I'm learning new things. Yeah, uh, always, you know, um, you know, being a lifelong learner and having that philosophy is that I'll never gain mastery, you know, because there's always a way to do this craft better. You know, that is the way I feel about um, what I do is I always feel such a novice, you know, and um, anyway. 
So you learned a lot, let's say. It was a formative experience at um, yeah. Atzil. Yeah, absolutely. Atzil's is one of, if you're a criminal, want to be a criminal defence lawyer, solicitor, yep. um, it's probably one of the best jobs you can actually do because yep. of the high amount of work. They have good jobs there. Their yep. funding model is extremely generous. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get the opportunity to run a lot of hearings uh, you ordinarily pro- probably wouldn't run. Mm-hmm. And the experience you get is you probably can't beat that organisation for a uh, junior criminal lawyer. So it was really good for me. So then, the next part of your story is you are ready for private practice. Yeah, I thought I was. Um, me and a few friends mm-hmm. saw a few other people around town with their businesses and the like and seemed to be doing well and... At this stage, we were a little bit jacked of Atzels, so we thought, you know what, if they're doing it, why can't we? Mm-hmm. Let's give it a shot. And uh, six months after having that little coffee together, we were opening our own firm, which was a really fun thing and learning experience to do. Um, fast track five years later, uh, and that firm's winding down. Sure, but, um, you know, let's, let's focus on what are the good things, you know, that you learned and... Yeah, that's, that's a difficult question. <laughs> at the moment. At the, mo- at the moment, because it's still a little bit raw. But good thing was, uh, I look back at it now, and it made me realise the process to effectively open your own business is extremely mm. easy. Trust you know? me. I'll, I'll, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm getting this at the moment. A, a lot of a lot of people seem to be deterred in opening business, and it seems to be this colossal thing mm. of oh wow, opening a business that's, that's incredible. And when, when in fact, procedurally, yeah. it's really not. It's no. very it's very easy to do. Yes, um, and very easy to do on little money too. Mm. You know, um, it's it's not a giant financial investment like purchasing a house or anything like that. It can be, I guess it depends on what. See, the thing is for us, law is, we're selling our knowledge and expertise mm. and mind and you, you, you're, you're same, you know. We, we don't have a product, uh, physical product, that we have to purchase or, or, or lay down financial expenses on to be able to do it. So our setup costs uh, were extremely low and I think that was one of the best things that I learned from it was the ability to set up your own business and things like that, there's no real deterrence. It's only what personal deterrences you have and things like that. We had a really good time whilst doing it too. Um, There was just a couple of things. Uh, Our lives changed a little bit um, over the course of those five years and and kind of went in different ways and um, fast-tracking towards the end. Like, it was really good experience Business-wise, made me realise how little business mm. experience I had. Yes. Made me realise what I struggle with in terms of business. Okay. For example... So expand on that. Yeah, righto. So one of my hardest things uh, was getting money out of people. Yes. Uh, I felt it was very uncomfortable hitting people up for legal fees. Yes. Um, uh, we worked on a trust account basis, so you had to pay up front effectively before we'd do the work. And I found myself doing a lot of work uh, without any money in there and, okay. and things like that. And pro bono. 
for a lot of pro bono work which I shouldn't have done, um, a lot of pro bono work that I, I, I did and was perfectly happy to do, but yeah, a lot, a lot of pro bono work where I uh, wasn't charging what I should have charged. And it's funny too, like when we did our yeah. practice management course, one of the things they drill home in you is you, your time and expertise is worth a lot of money. You need yeah. to charge it. And it's, yeah. it's hard to do, you know, like... Oh, look, I'm... Okay, so I'm going to provide some empathy here because as a psychotherapist, I find it tremendously hard yeah. to ask for money. You yeah. know, like it's... I feel cheap. I feel... Yeah. Yeah, like, like I... And... A lot of that, I think, is, you know, a lack of self-esteem, you know, like a lack of, I'm actually worth this. Um, well, this is for me. I'm not, I'm not speaking yeah. for you. And why would people pay me f- to listen to them? Yeah. And, you know, it's something I struggle with. Yeah, I don't think it was a self-esteem issue for me. For one thing, if anything, I'm, I was always, I'm always been too arrogant in my career in terms of my legal career. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know, I just, I just found it extremely difficult. I've got friends who thrive on it, mm. you know, who are able to, won't, do, won't touch an iota or a bit of work uh, until there's a whole bunch of money in, in their trust account. And it's, it's always impressed me their ability to do that. Yep. But yeah, I, I, I found it very difficult uh, trying to get money out of people. And obviously, you don't make money, you don't. Yes. You know, There's no point being in business. You've told me you've listened to a couple of my podcasts, but one of the things I've learned is a business that's making not making money is not a business for long. No. No. And I'll point out, like, it wasn't... Making money wasn't really an issue for us as to one of the reasons why oh, yeah. it ended up failing. Like, you know, we, we, we were living comfortably. Now, now how, how do you mean failing? Oh, look... I probably shouldn't use the word fail, but yeah. the fact that I'm no longer at the firm, I always view as a failure. Okay. We started a business and it's no longer in that business. Yeah. That's a failure. So you had an ideal the, and what happened and it lived to that ideal? Yeah. It was a whole bunch of factors. Um, like I said, different priorities for uh, our, our, my partners and I. Um, one of the main ones though, another completely different factor was, and one of the reasons I'm now at prosecutions, is uh, I, I think I started getting jacked of being a criminal defense lawyer. How so? Uh, jaded in that uh, I started finding it a lot more difficult to help, pe- help def- criminal defendants Mm-hmm. Um, because oh, I, I don't know it was a bunch of reasons I think last year I had a, I had a really bad way mental health wise then I've got a couple of young children yeah uh, as well as I've been doing criminal defense by this stage for about round about going on 15 years sure you know with, a, with a, some breaks in between I think it was just starting to wear me down these what are effectively for the most part not all criminal defendants are bad people, but for the mm. most part, some very bad people. And here you are yes. helping these very bad people. And I found, started finding it that I'm finding it difficult to separate my emotions. Yes. Um, you would have these extremely bad people constantly whinging at you. Criminal law is a thankless job. 
you, being a mental health nurse is a thankless job too. Well, uh, but yes, yes, I, I'm, I'm hearing you. I, I have no doubt that in my mind. But you, you have these people who are what would society call extremely bad people yes. abusing you yes. because they're in jail because they've just flogged the shit out of their partner. You know? And I'm hearing where you're coming from. <laughs> oh, oh, ge- genuinely. Or, or they're in a mental health thing, a mental health hospital, uh, in there and you haven't gotten them out and they're abusing you and probably get off the phone and then abuse someone like you. Physically, yeah. uh, along with <laughs> uh, verbally as well. Occasionally, yes. It's, um, yeah, but you know, we'll, we'll digress there, but that'll be yeah. my story. I'm interested in your story. <laughs> so so uh, I think I just, you know, it's, I got a four-year-old son. He's yep. sorry, he's five-year-old now. Um, it's hard to explain to a five-year-old child that you help criminals as your job. To put yeah. it in a very simplistic way, hmm. um, don't get me wrong. I, I still very much believe in the principles that you have to. Do, there should be criminal defence lawyers who do their utmost best to uphold the theories of justice. And everyone and, deserves a good defence. And everyone, everyone is entitled to a defence. Yep. Um, yep. But those, it was just starting to weigh on me, weighing on my soul and things like that. So, your soul? I, yeah, I think so. I think so, you know. Mm. You, you think you're trying to do good in your life, and, and here you are uh, arguing for this domestic violence perpetrator to get out on uh, bail when there's a very likely chance that he's about to get out on bail so he can go and uh, flog the hell out of his partner again. And I'm guessing sometimes you were successful in that. Oh, a lot of the times I was successful in that. So uh, yeah. it's, 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 it's not an easy thing to go through with. And earlier in my career, I had no, had no issues whatsoever. Yeah. And that's why I think just getting a little bit older. Yeah, no, that sounds painful. I, I started to realise that I wasn't doing as good as I should have. Now, now, how how do you mean you weren't doing as good as you should mentally or you weren't doing as good a job for your clients as you should? No, I wasn't doing as good a job for my clients as I should have. Yeah. Um, Wasn't, I I was snapping at clients. Mm -hmm. You know, when they they start getting angry and stuff like that, I was was abusing them back and and things like that. And you're a big guy, you know. Yeah. You know, like, I know on the rugby field that you can be (laughs) quite intimidating. Well, I've I've never, I've never had... uh, Criminal law is kind of a, we're not meant to ethically and things like that, but criminal law, you're dealing with extremely dangerous people. Yes. I've never had an issue with, if someone thinks they're trying to stand over me, Yes. Um, a client that is mm. um, putting them in their place. But mm. I, I was getting, you know, snapping back at clients that didn't really deserve it, who were just, you know, in a bad way at the time, mm-hmm. and I was snapping at them. So I, I just realised that along with a whole bunch of other things, like I said, um, yep. I needed a break. Mm-hmm. Last year, I think I hit burnout pretty badly. Now, what, what, does, what does burnout mean to you? Uh, just, uh, y- you've hit your emotional point. You're suffering mental health-wise. You need a break away to try mm-hmm. and lower the stress level or, or yep. give yourself a body to re- time to recharge to continue doing good. To continue doing right. good. Flee your situation. Yeah. So that basically, uh, I hit a point at the start of this year where I'm like, saw a job come up for police prosecutions. Yeah. What is effectively a, a, a very junior position, particularly yep. for someone like myself? And I just said, no, nah, I'm 
going to do this. This is what I want to do. What would normally be seen as a back step, and this goes to my your initial question about why did I call it a failure? Because I can't help but see, like, you know, I had this dreams of this long-term business. I've stepped back into what is, uh, what would usually be seen as a backward step career-wise um, by a lot of people. Uh, and by others. Yeah. However, yeah. well, I feel there's a but coming. Yeah, and, 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 and but, uh, whilst I have that disappointment about the firm and things like that, I've absolutely loved the decision that I've made mm-hmm. and loved the change. I'm, I'm financially, um, mental health-wise, uh, and just overall generally happy with mm-hmm. the change in my life that's occurred over the last year. That oh. um, I, I just walk around in a happier state, you know? So, yeah. So, so what do you think is the base of that happiness? What do you make of that? I think the stresses, I almost have non-existent stress now. Okay. Um, the, so, so, so what do you believe that, that, you know, like you've explained? Okay, so let me sum up. So you're in a position where, and trust me, I get this, you were supporting bad guys, bad, no, people who are malevolent towards others. Mm. People, so, so let me backtrack even further. Definitions of good and evil. So, something that is good is that it reduces the suffering of yourself or others. Okay. Something that is evil is that something that will increase your own suffering or the suffering in others. Mm. And, you know, look, this is getting sort of very metaphysical, but, um, you know, we're spiritual beings. So, you, you, you were... Now... I'm drawing a bit of a bow here, but you were getting a position where you were putting people back in the community who were perpetrating evil. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that weighs on the soul. Mm. Oh, gosh. Anyway. Um, so, so, so it's a little bit different for, like, let's, let's compare your role yeah. in assisting what, you know, the same person, same type of person. You're yes. assisting that person to be a better person. Hopefully. Yeah. Ideally, that's my ideal. Is I want I want to see people doing well yeah. and the best that they can be in life. Whereas for me, um, I always saw my role legally. I wasn't a social worker. No, and, and I'd happily tell people that. Yeah, um, my role is yeah. to do. I have a duty to the court, and then my next duty is duty to my client. And if my client wants to get out on bail, even though I think socially it's a very yeah. bad idea, yeah. then I get that client out on bail. Of course. Um, because you, you do get... Have you ever seen the movie The Devil's Advocate? Yes. Yeah, no, Reeves. Loved it. Oh, Loved God, it. I love that movie. Just from a moral point of view. You know, yeah. free will, you know, at the end, but it's got to be free will. Yeah. And then he takes the um, revolver and you know how it ends. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, it's that's got a, that's to be a great for yeah. Oh, it's it was a life changing piece of art. What's what's the line he always says? Are we uh, are we negotiating always? Always. I, I still I still use that yeah. always line. Yeah. But also right at the end of the movie, where it flashes back to where he gets out of the court, where he um, basically says, "Look, I can't defend this man." Yeah. And then the devil, for want of a better word comes back to him and says, oh, here's a lawyer who appealed to his conscience. 
you know, this is a great story. You're not going to be disbarred. And he, and you see this flash of pride. I've done the right thing. Yeah. And then the devil comes back. Pride is the greatest sin. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a, there's, a, there's a spin there at every time. Yeah. Turn. But, uh, yeah. That's, that's kind of how I was feeling at the point in time. And at least, yeah. like I said, it was, it was one of many reasons why. Oh, sure. You know, we're complex. And mm. um, the reasons why you do things are complex. Um, if I'm digressing a little bit and just explaining this, is that there's this premise that um, we're a very much a frontal cortex being. And the decisions we make, that we have free will. And we use our frontal cortex to decide this and that. Um, but the work of a psychologist called Jonathan Hyde, he suggests that the frontal cortex is not how we make decisions. It's a lot deeper than that. It's a lot in the limbic system and the amygdala, is that we often make decisions intuitively and then use the frontal cortex to argue why those decisions were the right thing to decide. So the frontal cortex, from a neurological point of view, is often the lawyer advocating for ourselves, you know, yeah. justifying why what we've done is good. Yeah. But often there are a number of arguments as to why we do what we do. Not all of them good, not all of them evil, but there are a number of arguments. And to have that humility to accept that I'm not really in control of my control of myself um you know th this is something i like to investigate in mental health is um yes you might have made poor decisions but they were not necessarily rational you know often that you're just responding to a stimuli and that was the best response at the time it doesn't mean that was the right response yeah yeah well that's it well that's basically the the, the basis for like you know have that gut feeling what you should yeah, do. Yeah, intuitive. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, we have uh, changed over to Police Pros now and, and I've been there going on four months. Yeah. Lo loving that. Uh, feel good going to work each day again, which yep. is a great feeling. Uh, able to pick up the kids in the afternoon. Able to pick up the kids in the afternoon. Flexibility. One, yeah, a lot happier playing with the kids and stuff like that. One, one of the things I realised something's wrong here was I was snapping. Oh yes. At my kids on the bringing weekend, your I, didn't, work home. I didn't want to didn't want to play with them and stuff like that. And I was bringing yeah. my work home exactly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah. Like like I said, there was, I was I was in a bad way mental health wise, you know, for for a long period there, and um, just decided not that enough is enough, and uh, it's just turned my life around. For what okay. what, what may be seen as a backward step is just a giant leap forward on every other aspect of my life. Yeah. Which you do have a life. Far outweighs career. Professional ambitions. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, good for you. Well done you, Nate. You know? <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> yeah, making a um, decision for yourself. Now, in regards to, you know, sort of what you're seeing, um, one of the conversations we've had is in a and around allegations of um, domestic violence. Mm. Now, as I understand, one of the things you've identified is that um, in Townsville here, the services in regards to anger management, and he here I'm having a naked sort of plug for what I'm doing. Yeah. 
um, you see may not be helpful for the mental health of the men who have allegations that are made against them. Yeah, like I've worked particularly in the domestic violence sphere over the course of the last five years and in Townsville now we have a specialist domestic violence court to try and address the issues of domestic violence in Townsville. Um, one of those, and, and I've seen it for a long, longer than since we've had the specialist court, but the complaint is the lack of uh, appropriate, is probably a better word, um, resources to, to help men address their anger issues, mental health, uh, basically the reasons why they may be perpetrating domestic violence, if, if they are. Um, because a lot of the times when the court's being, they're being dealt with in the court, particularly through the domestic violence court, hasn't actually been decided yes. that factually they have committed domestic violence or not. That's up to them to know. So uh, I know there's a couple of programs around town. Uh, as a practitioner, I've, ex- I, I've received feedback from a lot of clients about, and know people who have gone through it, that not so much that they haven't been helpful but they're not well run. Um, uh, in particular, you know, the, the way in which they make these men feel um, kind of sh- shuts them down. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're being treated, even though they are domestic violence perpetrators, they make it feel like they're being treated um, not like, all right, this is how we get better, but rather you're wrong, you're bad, this is what you shouldn't do, you know, which... Yeah, and from a therapy point of view, it doesn't work. No, no, and, and, and you can see that. And you, you, can, see, you can see these guys who, who come and provide me feedback, clients um, that, that basically say, I don't want to go back, and here I am giving them advice um, that basically sometimes has to be, look, mate, you need to suck it up, yep. and you need to keep going, and you need to... Uh, keep trying because you need to get that certificate at the end to yep. either A, so that I can argue for potentially less conditions, be in a better position to be able to argue for less conditions on your domestic violence order, or B, um, so that I can argue to keep you out of jail. Yeah. Um, for To use in mitigation in, in a plea of guilty. So there, there seems to be yeah a lack of resources that are more male-oriented uh, in re- round town. There are a lot of good couple of, I know, Indigenous-specific ones, yeah. all right? You've, sure. You've, you've, you've got a lot of the groups around town. I've got a um, good uh, elder in town there, Chad Duffy, uh, who's like a brother to me, you know, who, who run, helps run the men's group and stuff like that. But they're, they're specific towards Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders. Yeah. Um, there is only a few one or two in relation to not just Caucasian, but anyone who isn't Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander around town, um, specific courses to address, help them address not just domestic violence, but because these, these courses are designed particularly in relation to domestic violence, because you'd be able to tell me, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's not, people don't just wake up and decide to you know, punch their partner Always happens in a context. Yeah, or, uh, you know, abusive, and don't get me wrong, I say punch because that's the extreme. Domestic violence is much more broader than that. Yes. Um, Controlling behaviour, financial abuse, and 
yeah, all that comes down to it. There's usually underlying issues, psychological issues, children's issues, back from when they were children or they have children. Bingo. Um, uh, financial yeah. uh, uh, stressors and stuff like that and employment-wise and, you know, a couple COVID into it and goddamn, like, yeah. the amount of emotional stress people have at home these days would yeah. be through the roof and people who aren't able to process it because they... You know, one thing I was lucky with last year, how I said I had some mental health issues, I was able and had the upbringing privilege to be able to realise... Yes. You know, had, had the self-realisation that, shit, I'm in a bad way here. Yep. Whereas a lot of people who haven't had the privileged upbringing like myself uh, wouldn't realise that. Yeah. And, and they explode. Well, yeah, they defend themselves. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, you know, it's not justifying it. But um, the basis of it is they perceive something about them as being attacked. Well, look... I, when, when it comes to domestic violence, I like to stay completely gender neutral. Yeah. And, and it's one of the reasons I do that is because I used to go to a lot of the stakeholder meetings for the domestic violence court. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the people who would go, it's always the aggrieved, uh, who is the person that the domestic violence order is protecting. Yes. Is female. And they would just, just blatantly talk about it being female. Yes. And it was a constant argument between myself yeah, uh, and everyone else on the committee saying, yeah. hey, come on, males, uh, domestic violence is being perpetrated against males too. Yeah. It is not the majority, and it's it, the majority of domestic violence vi- victims are female, and I acknowledge that, but yes. it doesn't matter to me, at least in any yeah. event, because domestic violence is domestic violence, regardless of where it's being perpetrated against male or female. And I can tell you from my professional experience... Um Professionally, the number of people who are in gay female relationships, you know, aka lesbians, where domestic violence allegations have been made, DVOs have been made within that context. So, you know, I'd agree it's not only a male. Um, males aren't the only perpetrators. Yes, yeah, yeah, males aren't the only perpetrators. But also, I see domestic violence as a um, problem of outcomes. Mm. You know, I'm aware of research that's out there is that um, in regards to striking, in regards to physical acts of violence, that's an equal pay again. But the problem is that men, we are bigger and stronger, and that when a man gets hit by a woman, you know, again, the um, people just, oh, well, you know, you should be able to suck it up. Yeah. Yeah. But then when a man hits a woman, no, that's terrible. So that sort of judgment around, well, you know, she she sort of hit me first, so I hit her back. And again, like, it's like a um, Panzer and a Sherman. You know, the Panzers had great armour and they were very difficult to actually damage, whereas the Shermans, the um, Panzer shells would go right through. And this is why he's... (laughs) So it's not a difference of intent, it's a difference of outcome. Yeah, and, and it's usually the case that, you know, you, you police show up to, after a call for an incident, yep. here you have this aggrieved uh, 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 who, they've, they've had a mutual fight, she's hit him, he's hit her, 
there's barely a, not even a mark on him, and she's got a, a bleeding eye. Yes. From one point, one punch to one punch. Yes. I can tell you right now, there's only one person walking away with a yes. uh, domestic violence order in that situation. I, I, I must say, police have gotten a lot better in my experience, and this is purely yeah. just in my experience that. Um, there's the ability to have cross orders and cross applications. Yeah. And most, if that were to occur now, then um, with a lot of better training that's occurred over the last few years, uh, uh, both of them would probably walk away with a temporary protection order, domestic yeah. violence order, and find themselves in court with cross applications. But yeah, the the uh, the fact that, particularly if she says that I never punched him, mm. and. Um, uh, uh, or throw a plate at him, or well, well, something that was nearby. Yeah, that's right. Or, or you know, whatever ver- verbal abuse that led the provocation to actually yeah. occur, where he's lost control. Um, if she just says that she didn't do it, yeah, he says that's what she did. Um, but she's got the physical evidence. Phys- physical evidence to support yeah. her, which story, is obvious. Yeah, which is obvious. There's, yeah, you, police are fully justified to take her version over his. And it leads to a very difficult situation. And that's that uh, difference in you know, outcomes. And again, as they should. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a super tough position for police to be in at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I... You'll never get it 100% correct. And in the moment, you're just wanting to keep people safe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know... Um, and, if, and if that means one of them has to get out of the house, then that's what happens. Yeah, and it's obvious that, you know, you've got this person with a black eye, you've got this person with no marks, um, you're having certain claims being made, but just looking at the evidence that's in front of you, yeah. you know, it's a very easy choice even for me to make. Yeah. You know, and again, you're just wanting to keep people safe yeah. in that moment, get through the night, um... You know, yeah. So, so, so getting back to my earlier point, like, use that example. Um, that male gets uh, given what's called an ouster condition, yeah. which, okay. which is police have the ability to say you must leave that house for either 24 hours mm. or until you go to court. And then at court, it's likely the case that uh, uh, the lawyer for whoever or police or for the aggrieved may try and argue that that ouster condition continue so mm. that they can't return whilst the domestic violence order is in, in, place. In, in place. So one of the roles is, say, for example, uh, we use that where he did punch her back, then that is domestic violence, regardless of whether it's justified because, or because he was provoked by getting punched first. It's still domestic violence. Yeah. That, that shouldn't be occurring. Yes. So um, if he readily admits that, then... One thing defence or his lawyer would normally do would be like, well, all right, we'll try and negotiate that condition away. Yeah. And we'll agree to a domestic violence order, but we'll try and get rid of the condition so that you can return home. Because a lot of time they have children. Yes. He's a breadwinner. There's just a whole bunch of social difficulties with him not being in the household. And even for the children, we know, um, well, you know, from a mental health perspective, we know the effect of, uh, well, let's just say, Children that have a good relationship with their fathers do a lot better than children that don't have any relationship with their fathers. Yeah, I'm sure there's a billion of studies like yeah, that. Yeah, no, so that's fairly well established in the re- research. Um, the, you take fathers away, the outcomes for the children are actually greatly diminished. 
So where, where it comes into play for advice-wise is usually if you know, they agree to the factual basis that yes, domestic violence has occurred and prosecution, someone like myself is arguing, well, you shouldn't be allowed to reside in that household because you've committed domestic violence. Um, going off and getting counselling from yeah. someone like yourself yeah. is going to go a long way in yeah. the decision maker's mind of the prosecutor and it's purely just the prosecutor's so, decision of removing that condition. So I'm just curious here. Um, so this is obviously the situation, well, well I'm guessing this is a situation where the woman would be happy for the man to return, but yeah. there's a legal order yeah. preventing him from doing so. Because obviously the, the court cannot force a woman um, to say, look, you must live with this man. No. That would be a bit breach of their liberty and freedom of association. So we're not talking about this woman who's fearful of this man. No. Um, being forced to have him come back into the home. We're, we're talking about a she, woman... She wants him home. Yes. So let, let me put that into context because this yeah. is what a lot of people don't appreciate coming into the domestic violence court is police can bring an application and a prosecutor like myself can appear in court and they have the ability to, regardless of the uh, aggrieve or the woman's um, views or the man's, if the situation is yeah. resolved. No, I need him to return home. I need her to return home. I yeah. need him to help me look after the, the kids. children. They, yes. they can take the view that, no, what's effectively, and I've said this to 100 prosecutors, you think you know better. They make the view that she would be better off without him in his life. And they prosecute the application. They run the application on the basis that we don't care what her wishes are. Yes. And we are going to go ahead and try and keep him out of the household. So, yeah. So, so that, that's an affront of her free will. But um, it, it's, it's outrageous to someone like me who believes in the liberty principles and personal responsibility. Yes. Um, but it does happen. It happens very regularly. But it's those type of situations that would usually be resolved through negotiations. Yeah. After yep. the prosecutor sees... Uh, the respondent, the domestic violence perpetrator, male yep. or female, um, having done something like a course or counselling yep. through with someone like yourself so that they can have that little bit of, all right, he's addressed his issues, it's yep. safer for him to return. What would usually happen potentially be um, there's a condition on there to say that he can reside in the household, he or she can reside in the household with written permission of the aggrieved. Okay. So if something occurs in the future or something starts to occur, for she can example, with, withdraw that. And, and, and they have to leave. Yep. Fair enough. Yeah. So it gives them a place of safety yes. if they want it. And it sort of puts that element of power and control into the woman's hand. And I think that's a... Which can be a good and bad thing. So, okay. So, so explain both of those. Um, the... Uh, I could say the majority part is a good thing because it's protect. It'll usually protect that person. Yeah. Well, it'll offer deterrence. Yes. I say it always protects because it's just a piece of paper. And it, yeah. In the end, you know, yeah. if someone's going to break the law, they're going to break the law. Yes. But um, so the sometimes, and I've seen it from experience, it's held over the head of of people. Yes. So, uh, hey, hey, come home. 
um, I don't want you going out with your mates that night. Come yeah. home or, or I'm going to revoke your ability to live here. Things like that. It, it so, is used and abused as a position of power yeah. over, over men in other forms of life and is sometimes a lead to tension as well in itself. That's, that's a small thing, but that's why I clarify mm. yes for the, for the most part. Yeah, but... It's a power... It causes yeah, power imbalance. Yeah, of course. And um, one of the early themes that we were discussing was sort of manipulation. <laughs> and, you know, the, the law can be manipulated. Um, I see myself as a professional manipulator. But, you know, my ideal is to manipulate people um, towards the better version of themselves, however they identify it. Um, so, yeah, things can be manipulated. And I think we all engage in manip- manipulation. Um, mm. and, and again, it's one of those loaded terms as we see any form of manipulation as bad, um, where there can be sort of good manipulation and bad manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. That's a small example, too. And it, those types of conditions, though, are usually, for the most part, only put in place where you have extremely bad perpetrators of domestic violence. Yeah. When I say bad, there's a scale. Obviously. Of course. And, and, and nuance. And, yeah, and there's a history of domestic violence. It's, physic, it's physical violence, which is yeah. usually looked at as more serious and psychological, or yeah. it's serious psychological violence, you know, controlling behaviour. Controlling money, like controlling finances. Yeah. Um, where are you, you know, um, you've got to answer the... Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you have to come home, and where have yeah. you been, and... Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. So, well, again, one of the um, you know services I'm hoping to offer next year is potentially an alternative. uh, You know, is a four-week course starting probably you know over late January, early February next year. A four-week course and you know helping people manage their anger. and then, you know, also developing a 10-week course to um, just in regards to mental health. It'll be a group sort of therapy thing where we'll cover subjects such as, you know, male friendships, you know, to avoid, um, you know, look developing friendships that work for you. You know, being a father and um, your relationship with your own father. Talking about things like wealth and money, you know, how to provide that infrastructure for your family. Um, addressing anger, anxiety, depression, um, but also sex and relationships, you know, and of course coercion and consent would be part of that, you know, and I'm aware of examples of um, females using sex in a very coercive way. Uh, Your relationship with the work that you do, um, because I'm a sportsman, you know, there'll be discussions around sport and and how to use that as a positive sort of thing in your life. And, of course, um, the spirit of um, who you are as a man. So these are things that I'm hoping to offer, you know, the Townsville public uh, next year. So that's a naked plug for what I do. But, but of course, you know, happy to see people who have had allegations made against them, mm. speak to them, work out you know, how to respond to allegations, um, behaviours to ensure you keep yourself safe, but not only yourself safe, but keep your partner safe. So if you are in the moment where you feel like you're being provoked, 
towards um, violence. So one thing that we unfortunately do as mental health nurses, we seclude people. We lock them up in a room, you know, to keep themselves and others safe. But there's no reason why, if you can feel yourself being um, escalating, let's say, emotionally, that you can't take yourself away from the situation. Yeah. Rather than feeling compelled to strike back. But also things like you don't have to win every argument. You know, sometimes it's better to lose a battle and win a war. And in this case, I'd say the war would be to remain in that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to win every battle. You know, sometimes you can just concede. You know, you're having someone that's being aggressive towards you and just saying, I'm just, yeah, I'm not... I'm not engaging in this you know look I'll, I'm hearing what you're saying but I'm not and that, that takes obviously a, a great deal of skill and emotional insight into yourself experience uh-huh. yeah and experience and just being able to just say you know th- th- this argument's going nowhere how about we take an hour to um, and w- when someone's attacking you that might be infuriating towards, towards them because one thing about anger is it's very hard to remain angry at um, somebody that's not giving you any anger back. So, you know, it's often a, um, it's a spiral. You become angry at somebody, they become angry at you. You become further angry, they become further angry. It's a feedback loop. Yeah, yeah. feedback loop, absolutely, positive feedback loop. So one of the things that I teach is... That's that's how my wife wins every argument. (laughs) She refuses to argue with me. Yes. She gives me no feedback. Yes. She just stops talking. Yeah. And then after an hour or two, I feel extremely guilty for the fact that I got angry. And yes. all of a sudden, I'm apologising for uh, what I thought I was in the right for two yes. hours ago. Yeah. How the hell did that happen? Well, bingo. Well, you know, well, try, try and win an argument off a tree. <laughs> Get really angry at a tree and yell and abuse at it. And um, after about two minutes, feel how foolish you feel. Yeah. So... Well, Kieran's got me pecked. She knows I love arguing, so... She knows exactly how to win that argument. She yeah. just doesn't. Withdraw. <laughs> you know, but at the base of that must be a um, sense of love. Yeah. You know, that why would you want to beat your partner in an argument? Because once you've won, you know, you're with a loser. You know? Um, That's a good point. Yeah. I thought of that. Yeah. So why would you... And... At the base of relationship skills is trying to find a solution that you can both live with at least. Mm. You know, it's not about winning and domination because if you're completely dominating somebody, you know. That's not a relationship. Yeah. Um, Is that that acceptance that people are divine beings? You know, I always end up in metaphysics. And I think it's something that's um, under-acknowledged, let's say, in contemporary society, especially our um, secular Western societies, is the loss of the, for want of better, the spirit. You know, and again, I'm agnostic. I'm not a member of um, any formal church, but I see, you know, this is why I'm very much Jungian in my approaches. The thing about Jung's approach, this is Carl Jung, is that he leaves room for the God and the Spirit within um, the way that he saw psychology, 
yeah. fundamentally. And um, yeah, so that, that, that's I guess a plug for how I do work. Is no, I, I I think that that's needed in the space. Like I said, my experience is in domestic violence, although yeah. it's it's just as relevant for um, a lot of crime and, and things like that. Is uh, that type of counselling goes a long way uh, in mitigation because one thing the courts need to take into account is rehabilitation. Yeah, it's a sentencing principle, and if as a uh, lawyer, if you can show that someone has um, assisted in their rehabilitation and shown evidence the fact that they're able to be rehabilitated yeah and the way that you can best show that is through um, expert uh, reports and stuff like that then it, it goes a long way yeah well again you know um, remorse and regret you know that um, you might be regretful of how you've behaved in that particular interaction and you know if you're doing some sort of therapy um, work you know, well, maybe the situation wasn't unique, maybe this is part of a pattern, but how can you move forward? Mm. You know, when this sort of situation comes up next time, what are ways, that strategies that you can use to avoid being in the situation? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, and again, that's what I like to believe I hopefully work well with people with. Um, yeah. All right, well, we've done... Over an hour and a half, we've sort of come to the end, I think, of you yeah. know, where this conversation needs to be. <laughs> that was a crash course in my career. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can dive into a lot of aspects in more detail and we probably chewed through a few stories there in my early yeah. career, that, a little bit longer than, than we wanted to. But Well, again, I really liked um, the stories you told of the year that you had off. You know, that, that, that's where I think that we got to know, you know, the Nate and um, what you value and, you know, what, what you see, who you are, mm. which, again, to me was the purpose of um, doing this, is, you know, get to know you better, you know, get to see what's under the hood, let's say. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and again, um, love to repeat it sometime, and we, we might go on to sort of other sort of subjects, you know, like, you know, I'm aware that you're a father and I'd like to get to your views on fatherhood at some stage. Yeah. Um, we didn't really talk much about rugby, but, you know, obviously uh, England beat Australia and the contemporary of ha- how Australia's travelling at the moment. The All Blacks lost to Ireland. You know, I'm not sure if you saw the game, but the Irish were fantastic. What happened in that last game between All Blacks and Australia? Oh, the All Blacks won, of course. <laughs> Did they? Damn it. Must have yeah. been one after the one I'm thinking of. Oh, all, all Blacks comfortably won um, all three Blizzlow games this year. Who, who did they lose to down oh, in Oh, South Brizzy? Africa. Oh, South Africa. Yes. Oh, there you go. See, that's yeah. how much I'm tracking it these days. Yeah. Anyway, I thought, oh, I, thought I, was on a, I was on a good dig there, but I failed. No, 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 no. So, you know, obviously South Africa beat Scotland overnight. Um, you know, Argentina also beat Italy. It's, it's hard being a Wallaby supporter at the moment. Yeah, and... I think Rugby Australia... You know, it's hard again, being a rugby supporter at well, the moment. Rugby Australia, I think, has got a lot of issues, let's say. I think um, they haven't grown the game at the bottom. And the tap of young talent, you know, really being taken by AFL and Rugby League. Have, have you heard the podcast The Breakdown? 
Oh, no, I haven't. You should have a listen to that one. It's done by sure. our reporter of The Australian. Yep. Um, kind of goes through Rugby Australia's history from the gold... Kind of starts just before the golden years of Campisi times. And sure. Stuff like that, when rugby turns professional. Yep. Uh, and has a very good breakdown, that's the plan words for the title, yep. of um, how they get all their money, how they're kind of at, almost at the top of sporting for Australia. Yeah. And then... How they find themselves in the recent years, like oh. you said, of having no money, um, struggling at grassroots, and, yeah. and things like that. So, and as a rugby man, it's, um, it's hard and see. as a local rugby man, it's a tragedy to see. Um, like one of my things is that Super Rugby, you know, really took Australian rugby backwards. Yeah, right. Because the pinnacle, well, almost the pinnacle then before was that game between um, New South or free match series between New South Wales and Queensland which is the heartland of Australian rugby every year and out of that you know in the 90s you, you had a lot of great rugby players and the strength of Australian rugby was in its club competition mm. and that disconnection by making all these manufactured um, super rugby teams that don't really have uh, connection to club land to me, that that's where the rots sort of set in is taking taking that power away from those you know Brisbane and Sydney sort of competitions. Um, I think Qantas and the Qantas sponsorship did nothing for Australian rugby, and to be fair, alienated a lot of fans. You know, with Alan Joyce um, and his political uh, aspirations, let's say rugby became a lot less inclusive because inclusiveness isn't just about um, LBGT people. It's also about um, people of different faiths. Mm. Um, and by taking a position on that, the Pacific Island community, you know, who are... A large part of rugby. A large part of rugby and a large part of the Wallabies, but also within the community uh, is quite religious. You know, and um, I think it was a mistake. You know, Israel Folau should have been entitled to his views and I think the... You know, here we're getting into controversy. Yeah, well, that's 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 not a whole topic together, isn't it? Yeah. The uh, the pedestal we place our sportsmen on, and yeah. and then requirements we place on them to have hold certain qualities and things like that. I think is well, too much. But yeah, well, certain um, political ideologies. You know, like obviously David Pocock fitted very well into the rugby. You know, of of who they thought they were. But the fallout was you had a number of existing rugby players just saying, well, I just don't feel welcomed in the Wallabies team anymore because I just don't believe what we're supposed to believe. And the thing about rugby is I'll play with you, you know, no matter what your beliefs are. I don't care if you're gay. I don't care if you're a Christian. I don't care if you're... We just get together and we play the game. And by taking a stance one way or the other, I, I just think it was mistaken. Yeah. You know, of course, you know, we've played alongside, you know, gay players, we've played alongside Christian players, and we've all got along. Yeah, the, the, there's no easy answer to it, though, you know, is there? And because they're also running a business and they do have to think about sponsors and, and, and marketing yes. outcomes. And, and when you have your, what is a marquee player, um, uh, saying things that are uh, hurtful to a large population, then sure. the, there has and, to be and, something. As a mental health clinician, I'm going to push back on this a little bit, because they said that um, Israel Folau saying that would cause great distress. But part of my job was literally answering people in crisis, and I never heard 
oh, well, I'm feeling bad because of what Israel Palau said. Mm. When people are in crisis, they are in crisis because of things that were happening. Um, you know, they'd had a relationship breakup, or they were under stress at work, or you know they were treated poorly by their parents, or they were treated poorly by their children. But it was never a celebrity. Oh well, I'm in, I'm in such distress that I need to call the crisis line because of something a celebrity said. Someone's tweet. Someone's tweet. It never happened. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm not and I'm not saying that this didn't cause distress, but it wasn't so deep a distress. And again, this is just based on my anecdotal experience. Yeah. That it caused them to think of you know now or the hereafter. Yeah. It, like I said. How we place our, what I think sports people, yep. on a pedestal, is something wrong with Australia. Um, but that's what we've always seemed to have done. Um, just because someone can kick a ball really well, for some yeah. reason, we, we, we seem to hold them as mentors to be like. And it doesn't mean they're a moral person. <laughs> it doesn't well, mean that they're a likeable person. I, I, I can't get over the fact how the media crucify these you know, poor leagueies who are... 18, 19 years of age, getting paid a million dollars a year, and yeah. they go out in the town and do something stupid, and all of a sudden it's, it's the end of the world. I'm like, well, you had yeah. given me a million dollars when I was 18, and I guarantee I would have done a lot of stupid shit too. Like, yeah. it's, it's just outrageous to expect yeah. them to be these perfect role yeah. models. Yeah, a lack of charity for people, you know, to make mistakes. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's, that's exactly it. You know, just say... And again, I'm not condoning the sort of behaviour, but... I'd like to think I'm charitable enough just to say they were young. Young people make mistakes. Why is, why is a guy who can catch a ball a role model? Well, again, you know, because of the, probably the money he gets and um, the position in society. Because he's in t- on TV? Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, that's, that's, that's a personal view on it. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, that can be another podcast. Yeah, well, again, you know, like I'd like to let this settle for, let, let, let's say, three or four months, but, you know... Again, we can have another conversation, you know, maybe not so law-focused next time. We can get into sort of other issues that, that I understand we both share an interest in. Mm. Um, and then we can leave that for another date. Um, but, you know, but keep in mind that probably the only people that are going to listen to this may be your mum, maybe your wife. <laughs> no uh, yeah, no worries. After a few things I said about what police do, um, it's probably good yeah. that my bosses don't get a hear of this. Yeah, yeah, but you know, but then again, it is going to be potentially part of the public record. So, it's but fine. I don't think we've gone it's fine. too outrageous. I've, I've, I've controlled my tongue. Yeah, yeah, as you should. All right. Well, we'll say farewell from the um, Epic Podcast with um, Epic Psychotherapy. And remember, if you just need someone to talk to, you know, and the way potentially me and Nate have sort of spoken, and try and help. Figure some stuff out for yourself. Give me a call on 0497 395 341 or just visit my website at um, epicpsychotherapy.com.au.